Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Welcome to Material Girls, a scholarly podcast about popular culture. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And we are positively delighted to be joined by our guest today, Lena Norms. Lena Norms, she, her, runs a podcast called No Books on a Dead Planet, whose tagline is, we read climate books so you don't have to a YouTube channel where she discusses books, climate change, and documents her process of building a sustainable wardrobe, and a recycled patch company called Positive Panic Patches, I love alliteration, that makes scout-style badges you can earn by doing climate dares. She previously worked for almost a decade in the book publishing industry and has a poetry collection called Bargain Bin Rom-Com. Welcome, Lena. Hi, Lena. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm here for all the alliteration. (laughs) (laughs) Good. That feels thematically appropriate for this episode, right? Yes. Wonka. Worst Wonka. (laughs) Good. Yeah. (laughs) Why Wonka? (laughs) Oh, nothing will ever be as bad as the Johnny Depp Wonka. My God. Absolutely not. It's nice to have a long pitch to set the standard for, to build into, (laughs) you know. Okay. So, obviously... We all have a lot to say about Wonka, but we're not going to talk about it here. We're going to talk about it later because what I want to talk about right now instead, just to get us warmed up and feeling good, I want to talk about like the whole holiday season blockbuster phenomenon because when I think about the holidays, I think about going to like big budget movies 
all of which are flawless, like the Lord of the Rings films, the Star Wars sequels, and Cats, the last movie I saw before the world shut down due to the COVID-19 pandemic. All phenomenal, flawless works of cinematic art. So, Hannah, Lena, tell me about your movie going during the holidays. Oh, my God. Lena, is this a tradition for you? Do you, like, go see a blockbuster at the holidays? Do you know what? It hasn't been a tradition, but I've recently moved near a cinema where the tickets mm-hmm. are, and I kid you not, five pounds a film. Eight <laughs> Canadian <Ooh>. dollars. <laughs> a bargain. The price of a posh coffee. Nice. So I might be going a little bit more. Who can say? But um, after the Wonka experience, yeah. I feel like I've had my fill for a little <laughs> while, if I'm honest. <laughs> I'm going to go back to books, I think, or, or maybe crisp packets or cereal boxes. I don't crisp know. packets. Oh, my God. Holiday movies were absolutely not part of my childhood holiday experience. But maybe about 10 years ago, I stopped going home for the holidays and started either spending it with other family or more recently spending it with friends. So it has increasingly been a pretty pivotal part of how I experience Christmas. For example, I watched all of the Star Wars movies for the first time with my uncle and my cousins because we were going to see the first one of the new ones. What was it? The Force Awakens? That's right. That's the one. So we were going to see that and they'd never seen the original trilogy. So we binge watched (laughs) the whole original trilogy together so we could go see The Force Awakens. So fun. Probably my favorite like seeing a movie at Christmas memory is going on Christmas Day to see the Greta Gerwig Little Women with some friends. That's A plus Christmas viewing. That was my last lockdown film. Okay, but have you guys seen Cats though? That's my question. (laughs) Have you seen Cats? Because it's flawless. Yeah, with you. Our Why This, Why Now segment is all about identifying the historical, ideological, and material conditions that allowed our object of study to become zeitgeisty. Since we're recording during the holidays and talking about a big holiday movie release, Marcel, I can only assume you've got some festive suggestions for Why Wonka, Why Now? Oh, You had better believe it, Hannah. There is nothing more festive than a frothy collision of anti-Semitism and anti-censorship. So this is the approach that I want to take to talking about Wonka and why Wonka, why now? So Lena, as a booktuber, I believe in my heart that you're familiar with Roald Dahl's books. Is this correct? I am well versed in his in his canon. I actually reread the book for this as well. I hope you know. Dedication. Okay, so Lena, could you tell us a little bit about Roald Dahl's legacy as a children's writer? Why his books are so popular, and in particular, something that you're probably more positioned to talk about than either Hannah or I, how he figures in, say, Britain's cultural imagination. So Roald Dahl is uh, considered a national treasure in the UK. I don't think that's a controversial statement. Um, we were read his still? books in class. Most people were. Well, still, <laughs> from those of us who dwell on the internet and read, it's feeling tentative right now. But uh, if, for example, there are currently like BFG mugs in my supermarket right now being sold. There are, there's always a lot of merch around just any time of year. We were read his books at school. My first theatre show I went to see was an adaptation of BFG. I actually starred <laughs> in the Twits, a theatre show, as Mrs. Twit <laughs> once. <laughs> there are pics. 
but I will only show you Ooh, in private. Twit pics. <laughs> I'll flash you a little twit pic later. Um, <laughs> I also grew up with a massive fascination with Charlie and the Chocolate Factory in particular because I grew up in um, Coventry, which is really near Birmingham, which is near the original Cadbury's Chocolate Factory, which is oh. very, very prominent in British culture as well. I had my seventh birthday party there. <laughs> they still have a huge working factory. At a chocolate factory? Yes, at a chocolate factory. You can go around, there's a tour and they have trains. So it's big as well, like just the idea of the chocolate factory. So the Bourneville Cadbury's Chocolate Factory is kind of confirmed as Roald Dahl's inspiration for Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. He um, went to a boarding school nearby and they used to send Cadbury's chocolates to the boarding school to test them. (laughs) And he was one of the testers when he was 30. Oh, so he like says that the reason he got the idea for the chocolate factory is because he was like imagining all these scientists with potions coming up with great chocolates for the private school boys to try. Quite lovely, <laughs> but also bleak. Yes. So I was thinking about the reason why he has such a like massive appeal for like children growing up. And for me, I think the kind of pull of it was that he was like quite fascinated with a non-nuclear family. Like often kids uh-huh. were adopted by yeah. people who weren't blood relations, BFG, Matilda. He also showed effeminate men in a really affectionate light, which I think a lot of children loved. And I think that probably had a good influence on a lot of people. I'm trying to start with the good. He also kind of showed a world where grown-ups were cruel and children were believed by the author, by the authorial voice. So I think that's kind of unusual. I think I grew up with a lot of books where the parents were the people who were like, oh, silly children, you did that thing again. Like very Swallows and Amazons, Enid Blyton, you go out, you make a mistake, you come home and there's pie on the table. And I think that because his works were full of lonely children, children who weren't treated very well at home, and that was always shown in a negative light. I think there was a lot of stuff around that that attracted a lot of children in the same way that Jacqueline Wilson does. I don't know if that's a cultural phenomenon outside of the UK, but Jacqueline Wilson is as big, if not bigger than Roald Dahl in the UK. And she writes a lot about childhood trauma in children's books and like unsafe family environments. So I think in that way, I think growing up before foreshadowing, I learned what I learned. He was still kind of considered the naughty uncle of the British children's literature. He was always the kind of one who was like, oh, you can't read that. That one's that one's about naughty things or rude things happen in that one or there are evil people in that book or you do you know what I mean? He was still considered the kind of like slightly naughty uncle, I would say, in an affectionate way. Edgy. I remember edgy. as a child finding his books edgy. Yeah, like essentially the twits is about two people who hate each other. It's about a divorce. <laughs> it's very weird as a subject matter for a children's book. I guess he was kind of somebody who, in, in inverted commas, stood up for the underdog kind of before I really understood what the underdog really involved. I gotta say, his work sounds damn right delightful. Surely there are no like incidents of hate speech on record that might mar his beautiful legacy. (laughs) What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) The naughty uncle is always innocent. (laughs) Naughty uncles have never done anything horrifying. Never, never once. They've never had a shitty take. But as we lol, we all know that indeed Roald Dahl has said some shit. And a number of folks have, you know, drawn attention to his use of anti-Semitic stereotypes in his books, as well as like many, many, many other oppressive shorthands that vilify and dehumanize disabled people and women and black folks. And the list truly goes on. So Lena, could you tell us a little bit about this part of his legacy? (laughs) 
Um, I mean, in summary, I'd say it's bad. (laughs) And I think it's something that has been widely publicized in the media that adults read. But I I haven't seen a big translation into it being available in the children's market. I don't think people have a wider realization of it outside Mm. of people who hang out on the internet like us. Honestly, in Britain, I don't think people really do. A lot of his statements around Jewish people, well, I think a lot of people attribute it to being of the time. I don't really think that's valid. I think a lot of people were completely like polite and nice and kind during that time. And I don't think he needed to be that way. Uh, to say it in a very like school teacher way, I'm like, excuse me, Rodar. <laughs> Your schoolmates were very pleasant. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, learning about that was really disappointing and him seeing the kind of discourse around it. And I think once you retrospectively read some of the caricatures in his books, they do start to really unravel quite fast. And to me, they didn't really stand out as a child because of the media that it was surrounded by. I don't think it was the exemplary example of prejudice for the other kind of literature that I was reading at the time so at the time it didn't stand out to me at all now it does yeah (laughs) you can't go back yeah because they're because because it's it's subtle right it's subtle subtle with huge scare quotes around it but it's not overt I guess is the thing he's not like the witches are all Jewish women and that's why they are ugly and bad instead it's like these women have long noses and crooked toes and claws you can't see them in the daytime It requires some level of close reading, for sure. Okay, Marcel. Yes. I know that you are a serious scholar, which means I know that you know that we're here to talk about the 2023 Timothy Chalamet cinematic masterpiece Wonka and not the racist, misogynist, anti-Semitic and fatphobic novel. Allegedly. Allegedly. (laughs) Jerry's still out. I've never read it, so couldn't, couldn't say. But we're talking about the movie, right? We are so absolutely talking about the movie. This is an essential reminder. And your interjection is the perfect moment to pivot and start talking about the litany of Wonka (laughs) movie tie-ins and merchandise, which, Hannah, I would love it if you could talk about specifically. Yeah. So one of the reasons... I really wanted us to do an episode about this movie is that it has been an obsession for months now of one of my favorite podcasts, my brother, my brother and me, who have been talking about it at length, despite not having seen it. Um, (laughs) I think still the most recent episode they released, they still haven't seen it. Incredible work. But they have been talking about it a lot. And that (laughs) got me pretty into it. And particularly, they have been talking about the explosion of tie-ins, which is really fascinating. This movie is being merchandised so heavily and its partnerships are like kind of bonkers. Mm -hmm. So let me give you some examples. Please. Multiple shoe (laughs) tie-ins, both exclusive Nike Dunks designed by Timmy himself. Only five pairs made. But then also... Only five pairs. But then also for the rest of us, a bunch of Converse tie-ins, including some shockingly ugly gold sneakers that you could get that look like they're from space. They're amazing. Golden ticket sneakers. Golden Golden ticket sneakers. Which is incredible because this movie has no golden tickets in it. Absolutely no golden ticket. Absolutely no (laughs) reference to golden ticket. The only food tie-in I could find is with IHOP. (laughs) Um, who has released a range of upsettingly purple food. 
That's not what they're calling it. It's what I'm calling it. It's upsettingly purple. Incredible. There's a lot of fashion tie-ins. So there's a $300 Wonka X fossil beaded clutch covered in images of Oompa Loompas. Come on, guess. Chocolate. Poor people. Absolutely not. Fruit. Uh, what? There's- <laughs> what? Oh, because of the lickable wallpaper. These are all references to the book. I'm so confused. This is the bad place. I'm so sure this is the bad place. There's Continue. a Wonka X Revolution Beauty Advent Calendar filled with, you know, Advent calendars are filled with. Chocolate, chocolate. Beauty products, correct. What? You can also buy branded Wonka bar wrappers with golden tickets, but guess what? They don't include. Shut up. If you say they don't include no, chocolate, there's I'm absolutely no chocolate. What no, the no, there's no chocolate. In fact, it's basically impossible to acquire any kind of branded chocolate. Am I nefariously leading towards my own hypothesis about the movie's fraught relationship to chocolate? Yeah, maybe I am. Maybe I'm going rogue. Maybe I have my own hypothesis. Okay, my hypothesis is that they don't think that their merchandising strategy is going to work, so they don't want to use anything that's going to expire. (laughs) In the UK, there was a Wonka line of chocolate in 2005, and it completely bombed. The people didn't want it. So I think it's an expiry issue. That's my theory. Also, one of the plot points in the movie is the chocolate getting poisoned. (laughs) (laughs) They've released this clip, so I'm not sure if it's a spoiler, is a scene where where Willy Wonka has to shout, the chocolate is poisoned. (laughs) So maybe they were afraid that would discourage people from eating branded food. We can all agree that there's a lot of money riding on the success of this movie. So then let's pivot back to Hannah's interjection because I want to talk about this whole notion of separating the movie from the book and its author and whom that separation serves because I'm now questioning my own thought process here because if the merch is more tied to the book than to this prequel film that really could exist entirely without the book. (laughs) What is the relationship here? Okay, I have a timeline. Ooh, Here's what I have for you. The movie Wonka has been in the works since at least 2016. 2016 is the earliest date I could find while doing my thorough Googling. Are we all familiar with the Roald Dahl Story Company? Yeah. So Lena, yes, Hannah, no, that's okay. That makes sense. This is the organization that, to quote its own website, quote, manages the copyrights and trademarks of author Roald Dahl and works with publishers, filmmakers, theater producers, merchandisers, and other licensees worldwide, end quote. Okay. So this is like the estate. In November of 2018, the streaming service Netflix announced a collaboration with the Roald Dahl Story Company to create a whole bunch of animated extended universe adaptations of Roald Dahl's books. Lena, could you kindly read the following quotation for me, please? Quote, Netflix and the Roald Dahl Story Company jointly announced today that Netflix is extending the Roald Dahl universe of stories for global family audiences with an exclusive new slate of original animated event series based on the books from the acclaimed and award-winning author's best-selling library, including Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Matilda, the BFG, the Twits, and many other beloved titles. End quote. Perfect. Thank you. So 
This quote tells us what the role Doll Story Company brings to the collaboration. Hannah, could you please read the second half of the statement, which tells us what Netflix is bringing to the collaboration? Quote, Netflix will bring together the highest quality creative visual and writing teams to extend the stories in this first-of-its-kind slate of premium animated event series and specials for audiences of all ages and for families to enjoy together. Netflix intends to remain faithful to the quintessential spirit and tone of Doll while also building out an imaginative story universe that expands far beyond the pages of the books themselves, end quote. Beautiful. Thank you both. Okay. And among the many role Doll extended universe projects, who should be hired to, quote, reimagine the world of Willy Wonka and to develop an original Oompa Loompa series, end quote? Why, it's Hollywood's most famous Maori Jew, Taika Waititi. Pretty impressive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Waititi's involvement was announced by Netflix in March of 2020. Interesting. Uh, Marcel, in the wrong hands, this timeline could appear on Breitbart. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm just getting started. Okay, so you may have heard that the Roald Dahl Story Company issued an apology for the late author's anti-Semitism. But more likely, you never heard about that because the apology, according to the BBC, is found in a discreet part of the Roald Dahl Story Company's website. Oh, they posted an apology, but they hid it. They've also moved it since it was first like published about like because I followed the link and it was a broken link and I was like oh did they retract the apology no they just moved it somewhere else so we don't even know when exactly the apology first appeared because they just put it up and like we're just very quiet about it but then the Sunday Times noticed it and they were the first people to publish about that discovery on December 5th 2020 so that's the earliest point that we can confidently say the apology appears. December 2020. We're going to fast forward about six months to May of 2021 when Warner Bros. announces that Timmy the Chalamet will play the eponymous character in Wonka. Okay. So Jewish social media has feelings about this because Jewish social media is aware of Roald Dahl's anti-Semitic legacy. But I have two examples. Um, Hey Alma suggests that, quote, A Jewish actor once again portraying Wonka? That can be a nice big fuck you to doll, end quote. And then Hey Alma's sister publication, Kveller, takes the opportunity to write a listicle called 13 Things We Love About Jewish Icon Gene Wilder. So Gene Wilder, R.I.P., the OG cinematic Willy Wonka, and absolutely the only person to play Wonka of note uh, prior to Timothy Chalamet. So Gene Wilder is Jewish and Timothy Chalamet is Jewish. Well, that casting seems to suggest that Willy Wonka himself is canonically Jewish. I have no issues with that interpretation. (laughs) That's right. That's why Hogwarts can't be anti-Semitic because Daniel Radcliffe is Jewish. Exactly. So you know me, I love to research and I'm curious about the difference between, say, optics versus, you know, genuine attention to detail. So I wondered, I put myself on a list Googling a number of the writers of the script to find out whether or not there were Jewish writers working on the script, okay? So I Googled every single one of the writers' names with Jewish. So I have learned absolutely on from a list. the Tampa JCC newsletter, Jews in the News, that no less than three of 
these writers are Jewish. So Simon Rich, Jeff Nathanson, and Stephen Levinson. So there were Jews working on the script. Is this relevant? Can I prove that it's relevant? Uh, It's a bit sticky, but here's why I think it's interesting, because I don't think that it's a stretch to suggest that adapting a racist text for a diverse audience benefits from the contributions of racialized writers, right? So the fact that they have pretty famous Jewish writers working on the script seems to me to be a genuine attempt to escape accusations of reproducing anti-Semitism. All right, I I buy that. A few months later, Netflix buys the Roald Dahl Story Company. They just bought it. Wow. Does Netflix now own the whole Roald Dahl estate functionally? I think so, because the phrasing is acquired. On the 22nd of September, 2021, Netflix announced that it had acquired the Roald Dahl Story Company. I don't think you acquire something if you're still just doing a handshake business. I think Netflix owns it. And there was another article, I can't remember who published it, that referred to it as Netflix's golden ticket. So Netflix now owns Roald Dahl's legacy. Forever. That's wild. So I really want to know if that means that technically Netflix is a co-producer of Wonka because the relationship here is so curious because the Roald Dahl Story Company is one of the producers of Wonka. Oh. And so if Netflix owns it, then technically, yeah, right? But maybe there's some like business nonsense about separate entities. I have no idea. So we know that between 2016 and the release of Wonka in December of 2023, the Roald Dahl Story Company, Netflix, and Warner Bros. have all taken significant public measures to disavow Roald Dahl's notorious anti-Semitic legacy. Because they want to profit off this thing they just bought. Exactly, right? It is in their financial interest. So the Roald Dahl Story Company puts a little apology so that anybody who's curious about it can Google Roald Dahl and anti-Semitism and the apology will show up. And Netflix and Warner Bros. are putting actual, like, famous Jewish creators in charge of adapting the story content. So none of this is accidental. I hesitate to ask this, but you said earlier that you wanted to look at Wonka in the context of anti-Semitism and censorship. Mm -hmm. As always, Hannah, perfect pivot. One of the big issues that we in the 21st century have to contend with when it comes to adapting beloved works of infamously oppressive literatures is the problem of adaptation itself, because readers do not like it when their favorite books get changed. And out of curiosity, are either of you familiar with the controversy about Puffin Books updating the quote-unquote colorful language that Roald Dahl used in his books to make them more inclusive? I am. I'm not on Jewish Twitter, but I am on publishing Twitter. (laughs) I have seen all the screenshots. Yeah, so people are upset about it, right? Do you want to give some examples, Lena, of like what they're updating? Well, they're updating. updating. Um, updating. So the upset was caused because it wasn't just a few changes. The Telegraph actually went through and did a very, very big deep dive into every single change they made. And they actually hired an outside company to do it, like a kind of consultancy company around diversity, which is a good instinct. But they changed a lot of very strange things around like the genders of the Oompa Loompas, for example. (laughs) 
because we need female representation among the Umpalupa population, of course. And the reference to the fact oh, that women... Oh, that was a big problem with the original text. <laughs> this is the lack yeah, that was the biggest problem. <laughs> that was what was very upsetting about uh-huh. those books. They took out the word fat a lot. Like they basically took out yeah. the word fat from all of his text, but they left in words like flabby and enormous. And enormous. <laughs> and, yeah. and other descriptive words that I think are kind of, a lot more careless and more harmful. Yeah. Man, really weird too to be taking the word fat out of the books while making a prequel that prominently features a fat suit. Right? It's wild. Yeah. Yeah. What else did they change? There were lots of very strange changes around like referencing that women work as secretaries. They didn't like that that, that was a thing, even though lots of women do work as secretaries. <laughs> women can be more than secretaries. Women can also be Oompa Loompas. (laughs) (laughs) This is a rhetorical question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What were critics of this process objecting to? Okay, so as Lena, I'm sure you are aware, there were a lot of different criticisms for different reasons. And so I thought that I would pull out a maybe nuanced example. Perhaps it's more nuanced. We'll see. I, I don't disagree with it. That's why I'm calling it nuanced. So... (laughs) I wanted to look at Susan Nossel. Um, So Susan Nossel is the CEO of PEN America. And PEN is like a a not-for-profit organization dedicated to like free expression and literature. And it's against book bans and educational censorship, that kind of thing. Lena, could you kindly read this two-part quotation from Nossel? Quote, If we start down the path of trying to correct for perceived slights instead of allowing readers to receive and react to books as written, we risk distorting the work of great authors and clouding the essential lens that literature offers on society. Armani Said from The Time asks more context from Nossil's thread. Quote, the problem with taking license to re-edit classic works is that there is no limiting principle, Nossil said. You start out wanting to replace a word here and a word there and end up inserting entirely new ideas. Instead, she suggests, publishers should include introductions to works with offensive language to prepare readers with context. End quote. Thank you so much, Lena. So, so maybe this is the academic in me, but like I love a literary apparatus. And so this is why I find myself agreeing with Nossel. Like if you just go in and sort of like comb through the text and be like, well, the word fat is clearly offensive. So instead we shall call this bad character enormous. That will make it acceptable. That's bonkers. But if instead you have a literary apparatus that, say, informs readers of the unacceptable framing of the text in the first place, you know, you can accomplish different things. My feeling is that all of Dahl's books should have a general introduction that acknowledges this. No? I've got kind of a different take on what you do with books that like equate fatness with villainy, which is that we just like stop obsessively reading them and adapting them and talking about them and instead we read other better books. Oh my God, Hannah, yes. You are suggesting that we just let them go out of print. Sure. (laughs) So Philip Pullman apparently also responded to the upper orbit censorship by suggesting exactly that. Read things by other writers. So he listed off like a dozen writers and said, quote, read all these wonderful authors who are writing today who don't get as much of a look in because of the massive commercial gravity of people like Roald Dahl, end quote. Well, the problem with that is that it doesn't let Netflix make a shit ton of money off 
resuscitating his reputation. Indeed. So obviously I'm interested in the timing here because the Puffin Books language review started before Netflix bought the Roald Dahl Story Company, but certainly not before the two were in partnership and definitely not before Wonka was percolating at Warner Bros. So there's something that is connecting all of these moving parts, right? Marcel, do you think a theoretical framework might help us with this? Do you have any in mind? Let's see what I got. Well, it's not the theory we want, but it is the theory we deserve. So even as I was down to the wire, continuing to piece together this theory section, one of the things that I'm really struggling to put together in straightforward terms is the relationship between anti-Semitism, accusations of censorship, and profiteering, for lack of a better term. So, you know, whose books, for example, get censored, pulled from a reading list, and whose books get, say, posthumous editorial facelifts and an extended universe. So I'm going to start us off with Lawrence Hill, and in particular, a 2013 lecture that Hill delivered at the University of Alberta, where I did my PhD and Hannah did her postdoc. Do you want to give just like a little gloss of who Lawrence Hill is? Yes, absolutely. He is a Black Canadian author, and he has written in particular about Canada's role in the slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade, and in particular, like highlighting the parts of that history where Canada was actually involved in the trafficking of humans, which, if you are a Canadian, is often a surprise to learn about because that's something that bad countries do and not something that good countries like Canada, who believes in multiculturalism, does. So Lawrence Hill wrote a novel called The Book of Negroes, which is sort of his really like big breakout Canadian novel. And The Book of Negroes was translated into languages and published in countries all over the world. But in one community in Europe, it was the subject of book burning because the community didn't like the use of the word Negro. And anyway, so that's a sort of like quick primer. So he, in response to this experience of having his book burned, which is very traumatic, he wrote and delivered a lecture at the University of Alberta that was called, Dear Sir, I Intend to Burn Your Book, An Anatomy of a Book Burning. And so this lecture includes a series of anecdotes that kind of represent these different considerations of censorship and how censorship functions. So of books as burnable objects, Hill writes, quote, we can hate them, dissect them, learn from them, or praise them, but we need to leave books alone and let readers come to terms with them. We can teach young people to be aware and to be critical thinkers, but to believe that we can protect young people from the ideas in literature is self-delusional in the extreme, end quote. Um, so this thinking really puts him in alignment with Nossel, who we quoted from earlier. It's a perspective that opts for more information over less information. In the lecture, he talks in particular about how his thesis gets thorny when it comes to teaching and curricula. That's not exactly in our scope, but he does give us a very useful example of the kind of book that gets pulled from schools and classrooms, which is Three Wishes by Canadian author Deborah Ellis. Lena, would you pretty please read uh, Hill's description of Three Wishes? 
Quote, it contains the real monologues in the voices of real children, some Jewish, others Palestinian, who are caught up in the tensions and hatred of living in what is essentially a war zone. Some of the children express fear and hatred of the other. Many lack opportunities to get to know children on the other side of the divide. One of the children interviewed was the sibling of a suicide bomber. This inflamed the Canadian Jewish Congress, and the next thing you knew, this incredibly thoughtful and insightful book in the voices of children about their very lives as children in the Middle East was removed from the hands of children in the Toronto District School Board. Apparently, Palestinians and Israeli children are old enough to live through hell, but the children in Canada are not old enough to read about it. End quote. Thank you. Thank you so much. So this anecdote naturally makes me turn to perennial favorite Judith Butler because they are particularly insightful on the matter of anti-Semitism and its deliberate inconsistent limits. For Butler, the biggest problem with the way that we think and talk about anti-Semitism is that it is not adequately historicized. Coach, we're going to need that stinger. You, you know the one. Historicize, historicize, it's always time to historicize. Butler writes often that criticism of the state of Israel has become the dominant site for charges of anti-Semitism and that this is a problem. In short, if public support for Israel is the only real criteria for not being anti-Semitic, then notorious right-wing and white supremacist pundits like Steve Bannon who Butler writes about specifically, they can circulate pernicious stereotypes about Jews with impunity simply by supporting Israel. And so in this way, genuine anti-Semitism has been discursively prized apart from the other flavors of racism and xenophobia. Mm. Hatred of Jews boils down to hatred of the Jewish state and is imagined, therefore, to be separate from the dehumanization of other racialized groups. Yeah, I mean, it makes me think of of other forms of, like, failures of intersectionality, right? Like mm-hmm. white feminism attempting to discursively separate out race and class as though poor Black women's experiences of misogyny are not feminist issues, but race issues or class issues. Precisely. So while some might argue that, say, overt white nationalist rhetoric is more dangerous than stereotypes about Jews informing, I don't know, like who runs the banks in the wizarding world, I'm not convinced that they are so particularly different. Um, And so that will bring us to the third and final scholar of this itty bitty little theory section, David Feldman, who has written a primer on the origins of the term anti-Semitism. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And in this primer, he relies heavily on the early 20th century writing of Lucien Wolf, who is actually the author of the Encyclopedia Britannica's first entry on the term anti-Semitism. So Feldman brings in Wolf to provide us with anti-Semitism's villain origin story, if you will. So Feldman tells us that Wolf understood anti-Semitism to express, quote, the erroneous view that Jews were members of a distinct race whose interests were separate from those of their fellow citizens or subjects, anything that gave the impression that Jews claimed a nationality for themselves was likely to feed it, end quote. Sounds reasonable. And like all terms, the term anti-Semitism changes, its meaning changes over time in response to different kinds of political pressures. So again, Feldman vis-a-vis Wolf, quote, It, anti-Semitism, 
proved a flexible category that allowed Jews and non-Jews to make sense of and respond to successive political challenges. It is also apparent that objections to anti-Semitism drew attention to a value or project concerning Jewish rights that was being violated. That violation is what defined anti-Semitism. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, anti-Semitism was identified with an assault on Jewish emancipation. End quote. Can you explain what the key differences are between those two definitions, right? So like the treatment of Jewish people as a distinct race Mm -hmm. and like the idea that Jews are claiming a nationality, like that's the first one. And then the second one is about Jewish emancipation. Yes, yes. So Wolf is writing and thinking about what anti-Semitism means in the early 20th century in a specifically German context. And Mm. he's thinking about the way that in Europe, the fall of several different empires and the rise of nationalism, he's thinking about the ways in which Jews have gone from one of numerous minorities in a sort of big mishmash of empire into a specific problematic minority in a newly developing national... um, Oh, like the positioning of Jews shifts with the rise of the nation state. And it's like alignment of like nationality and ethnicity and statehood. Whereas when Europe was like mostly empires, like there wasn't that close alignment of like the political body with the ethnicity. Yeah, of the people. So the way that Jews get framed in Europe changes. Yes, yes. So what is, I think, interesting, and the reason why I wanted to use sort of this villain origin story for anti-Semitism is because I'm still quoting from Feldman, who's writing about Wolf, anti-Semitism, quote, was not synonymous with all forms of Jew hatred through the ages. Although it interacted with medieval religious prejudices, Wolf understood anti-Semitism to be something distinct from them. It was a political ideology inspired by nationalism, an attempt to reverse the social and political gains of emancipation and to exclude Jews from public life and, because he's writing about Germany, German civil society. These ideas had gained political momentum, Wolf believed, from the conflicts generated by capitalism, from the migration westward of Jews from Eastern Europe, and from appeals to the mass electorate. End quote. Okay, so to recap, the history of the term anti-Semitism is directly tied to industrial capitalism and nationalism. It's not that racialized hatred towards Jews started in the late 19th century. Lawrence Hill gives us an example of when the Talmud was burned for blasphemy in 1141 in Paris. Rather, the issue is that anti-Semitism as we know it today is born from the dissolution of several European empires and the rise of nation states. It might actually be really useful for folks to go and listen to our Witch Please episode on nationalism. Just a suggestion. Okay. I mean, man, this really makes me immediately want to talk about the like rendering Jewish via casting of a book that is about a factory, (laughs) for one thing. (laughs) And also the movie's careful attempt to remove... Willy Wonka from a specifically British context, but I'm getting yeah. I'm getting ahead. I'm getting ahead. You're getting ahead, but you're not wrong. I'm going to leave us with one final quotation from Feldman, 
And this one is about Europe in the 1930s. Quote, over the next decade, the integration of Jewish minorities in these states was shaped not only by legal disputes over the meaning and implementation of the minorities treaties. These were the treaties that gave minorities, including Jews, legal status and rights in these new countries, but also by majoritarian nationalist movements, many of whose proponents saw no place for Jews and other minorities, least of all on terms of equality, end quote. So from all of this, what I want us to be thinking about is the way that the history of anti-Semitism, as we know it today, comes out of a sort of self-determination nationalist rhetoric in the context of ethno-cultural groups finding a path for themselves as sovereign states post-dissolution of empire and the ways in which anti-Semitism can, I think, be seen to weave their ways into the fabrics of national identity. Which is why it's so important not to erase the realities of anti-Semitism from the history of British literature in particular. Because like that sort of rewriting of the history of anti-Semitism in Europe in the wake of the Holocaust has been this like really pivotal political tool to basically claim that Nazis hated Jews and nobody else did, as though anti-Semitism wasn't like a part of the political fabric of the UK. And also as though like Canada and the US were not turning away boats full of Jewish refugees. Right. I know that this isn't specifically an episode about the Holocaust, but we might think, for example, about why it is that as Nazi Germany was gradually annexing all of these other nation states like Poland and Hungary, why it was so seamless to incorporate the genocide of Jewish people into these other nation states as well. Like it was not more difficult to ethnically cleanse Ukraine of Jews than it was Poland. Does this kind of make sense? Because anti-Semitism was already deeply woven into the the rise of nationalism. That's right. And the nation state the, in Europe. That's right. Which is something that Roald Dahl participated in. He was a spy. He, he was in World War II. He was friends with Winston Churchill. He was oh. friends with him. <laughs> it's all a thing. Lena, I didn't know that. He is. He was a spy. He used to go around his house. It was a hole. There's rabbit holes. But this is why you're making me think this is, is a very British kind of anti-Semitism that I didn't realize until you just said all that. And now it's all starting to make sense. And it starts to think if you start correcting Roald Dahl's books and then people learn that actually Roald Dahl was a military person as well. He was like actively involved in all this geopolitics by name. <laughs> And advising Winston Churchill, it would be confusing to that not to seep into his books. Anyway. Yeah. Oh, oh my God. Oh, man. Marcel, I feel like we're percolating towards a thesis here. Sure, let's do it. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Now that we've sampled all of the delectable flavors of scholarship, it's time for La Pièce de Résistance, a thesis in the form of a song. I put everything I had into my chocolate. Anyway, (laughs) I'm actually not going to sing my thesis. Okay. With all of this investment in keeping Roald Dahl books in publication, as well as developing new adaptations and extended universes, not to mention the opportunities for merchandising and tie-ins, not only for the movie, but also for the book, I guess, that inspired the movie that has truly nothing to do with the book. The notion that we can separate the artist from his work? Clearly the wrong question we might more productively ask, how does scrubbing out a measure of oppressive language allow all of the various parties to continue profiting off of a collection of books that could, in fact, just stop getting printed? And adapted. What is so essential about the role of this author, Roald Dahl, in the national literary imagination that letting him go out of print is unthinkable? And more to the point, how does slapping a hot Jewish twink onto Wonka invite Jews and other minoritized groups to literally buy into the ongoing reproduction of racist discourse? In this essay, I will argue... Okay, can we talk about the movie now? Yeah. Can we please talk about this bonkers movie now? We absolutely must talk about this movie. I turn it over to Hannah and Lena. I want us to start with this question of the Britishness of this movie because where is this movie set? (laughs) I have got no idea, but what is confusing to me, and this is what I was reflecting on afterwards, is that they employed so many British actors that might only be known by British people. Like so many of them are like British in-jokes. It felt almost like a Harry Potter film in that way. But then everybody else was American or from another nationality and they weren't asked to change their accents at all. (laughs) So And then the part where Wonka is coded as a Irish traveller and he lives on a canal boat growing up with his Irish mother filled with like Irish traveller, like culture and paraphernalia, everything. And then immersed in that. And then the next time we see him, he's completely devoid of that and has an American accent. It was like a fruit salad of cultures where they were just like, put it all in. Put it all in for, I assume for like, a globalized viewership, right? Because we know that, like, when movies are attempting to be real box office hits, they are always thinking about global audiences. So it's really interesting to see the attempt to package a, like, extremely British movie to also be, like, appealing to American audiences, appealing hypothetically to to global audiences by just, like, through a sort of mishmash yeah, from a commercial point of view, I think that like the exploitation of Britishness is like proof to make money, right? I'm confused. I'm like, did we not just have like five and like Jane Austen adaptations? Didn't that work? <laughs> I'm not saying it's good or bad, but I'm pretty sure it's profitable. And there's there's so much like Paddington DNA in this, right? So it's like it's not Britishness in general. It's a very particular packaging of a like a historical British past that is characterized primarily by like a kind of quaintness. Like the plowman's lunch. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the plowman's lunch. A great example of a like invented British historical thing. Uh, not a traditional British food, but rather a contemporary invention based on a sort of romanticized British past. 
So, like, it's so obviously trading in Britishness and, like, trading in Paddington TM Britishness in particular, like, even down to, to some of the casting. But then also this attempt to be like, but we're not in Britain. No, no. We're maybe in Paris? Yeah. And the, like, the, the like, mall where they all sell chocolate feels like we're in Paris. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although I think that is a British set. I'm pretty sure that's a place in London. And then they also show like the Bodleian Library in Oxford. There's lots of like very expensive scenery that I'm like, that must have taken, but but to what end? You spent all this money. It does again kind of feel in the same way that Barbie did feel like cinema by committee. Like everybody got to pick one thing they wanted in the movie, <laughs> but nobody Ooh. actually got their way. <laughs> it feels very weird. It's such a tiny example, but the thing that really stood out to me is that Noodle, who is raised by Mrs. Scrubbit and Mr. Bleacher, who's like fucking in a Mary Poppins movie. And then Noodle's just... Noodle just has an American accent. She has like an untraceable American accent. But she was, according to the movie, also born there. She was born there. Yeah, Yeah, she's British. The argument can't even be that it's just like American DNA. Like she was... (laughs) <laughs> she's from she's from there and she just is American and also the chief of police has like a Brooklyn accent totally yeah that's right they were called yeah, so right. block police yeah and so I think that there's what strikes me as quite a deliberate attempt to pull the story out of anything like a real place which you know if you think in contrast to the like recent adaptation of the Matilda musical which is like, for better or for worse, does seem to be like in Britain. Yeah, definitely. Like they do they do seem to be like, yeah, we're in Britain here. Everybody here is British. The sun does not shine once in that film. That's <laughs> very accurate. Not a single time. It's so fucking It's a very gray. muddy, gray film and I appreciate the authenticity. Yeah. And this is sort of in a fantastical nowhere space that seems in keeping with this larger project of attempting to divorce the sort of profitable brand of Wonka from the very specific history of Dahl's British anti-Semitism. I think as well, like a lot of the caricatures in it prop up some of the other books. It feels like it's more into promoting. So like Noodle is very Matilda coded. Yes. The innkeepers couple are very twits coded. I could probably go in if I watched it again, which I shan't. (laughs) I know that I could find more. It felt like they were filling in the universe. It really did. Yes. And propping it up for maybe other adaptations or just for people to feel mm-hmm. warmly about the other Roald Dahl books rather than referencing the culture that it was surrounded by. I have some other comments about the, the devoidness of it being like the kind of construction of a factory. So yeah, like Wonka doesn't kidnap the Oompa Loompas. He actually no. goes and they've come back for revenge and they do a business deal at the end. With they follow It's all very him. amicable. It's a team effort. Um, and also the fact that the factory at the end appears in a castle out on a hill, which completely yeah. doesn't set it up to be a prequel because the whole point of the factory is it's in the middle of the town and then they discharge all of their employees <laughs> and replace them with Oompa Loompas, which is a great British fear of being replaced 
by foreign labor. That's right. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the, the building it on a castle on a hill somewhere completely different, it doesn't become this overshadowing castle that the whole village or the whole town lives in fear of this, like the whole idea of the chocolate factory is mysterious building that's in the middle of the town that everybody talks about, but nobody can go into. So making it more of a tourist destination that's beautiful and they're just like redoing a dilapidated castle is again. Yeah. And the fact that in the scene where we sort of most immersively get to see the sort of magic of the factory in practice, which is sort of the failed launch of the location in the sort of Parisian arcade, the film makes a point of continuously showing us how the magical seeming things are happening and showing us that they're being powered by the enthusiastic, pleasurable, voluntary labor of Wonka's friends. That's right. Who are powering it all by bicycles. And yeah. just no exploitation happening here. No. And then when it burns down and they are as sad as he is that it didn't work. Because it, it was a group effort. They all really wanted this to work out. That's right. So what the two of you are describing is the cinematic equivalent of revisionist history. Because Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and the original Willy Wonka movie, these are not real. These are literary representations of British anxiety. And then in this so-called prequel, which does not pre-anything, it invents a whole new history. Like, there's no way this Willy Wonka is the villain played by Gene Wilder, who watches children get murdered in his factory. There's no way. Like, what happened? That's what I want to know. Like, what happened after this movie that all of a sudden our beloved twink, Timothy Chalamet, is like, you know what? Fuck kids, though. Some kids can probably (laughs) die. That's probably fine. I'm just so confused about there was no character development of Wonka. Like, we don't really understand why he's so interested in chocolate apart from his mum made it. And he thinks that if he perfects chocolate, then his mum will reappear, which is a trauma dump, but not a plot point. (laughs) I was very confused about him generally as a character. He put everything he had into his chocolate. But remember, and I wrote this down in the cinema, even though it was dark, because I felt like it needed to be remembered. It's not the chocolate that matters. It's the people you share it with. (laughs) Okay. That's the last line of the freaking movie. I'm going to murder somebody. Can we talk about the anxious signifier of chocolate? Yes. Which is to say my gorilla thesis. (laughs) Yes. Because I couldn't stop thinking the whole way through this movie how freaked out this movie is about chocolate. Okay. How desperately this movie wishes that it could not even remotely be about chocolate itself and is constantly sort of working through this anxiety in relation to the actual material thing that is candy. So one, the movie is so anxious about the origin of the cocoa beans. Oh, yeah. Right? Because it it has to grapple with imperialism mm-hmm. because cocoa simply does not grow in Europe, no matter what kind of fantastical imagined Europe you're set in. And so instead, the cocoa beans were stolen from the island of the Oompa Loompas. But the whole character of the one Oompa Loompa we have, played by Hugh Grant, as a like really transparent effort to 
shift the sort of association of Oompa Loompas with like foreign labor. Mm-hmm. Like just make the most British imaginable man Absolutely. the one Oompa Loompa. Yes. But also his entire narrative role is extracting reparations from Wonka. And that is all he does. But like very politely. <laughs> And responded to very positively by Willy Wonka, right? He's like, oh, I had no idea that cocoa beans were so rare on your island. I, I I, only took three. And he's like, you took four? And he's like, four. Sorry, my bad. Yeah. Like, essentially, he has taken the raw material illegally from this island, but he is now using his industry to reshape that raw material into something that the Oompa Loompa acknowledges is more valuable and thus is willing to allow the theft because he has used industrialization (laughs) to render it, to add value to it. Since you're selling it, then that's fine. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You were able to use our resources more effectively than we ourselves were able to use them. Absolutely. (laughs) And I will go back and tell the others. (laughs) I will let them know. Actually, this white guy, not a problem. So debt paid in full. And let's now invest in this business opportunity. Let us join forces. Yeah. But then on top of that, we've got, I mean, the bonkers narrative of the chocolate cartel who are cutting their chocolate in order to amass a secret supply of chocolate that they use to pay off the chocolate-addicted chief of police. And the priest. And the priest. So chocolate is also transparently a synonym for drugs. Yes. Like, very clearly a synonym for drugs. Yes. And hoarding, and hoarding wealth. And every person who likes chocolate too much Mm -hmm. is a villain. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, the fact that in this fucking attempt to remake and reimagine the world of Willy Wonka, there still has to be a central character who is shown liking chocolate too much, getting fat as a result, and ultimately his fatness is a visual signifier of his greed and his immorality shown via Keegan-Michael Key's bigger and bigger fat suit until ultimately the fall of this villainous character because fat phobia is so deeply embedded in our culture, arguably more now than ever. Like, it's not getting better. It's getting worse. And the fact that the movie still has to be like, okay, only thin people can eat chocolate and we have to see that thin people only like eating a little bit of chocolate. So when he ultimately breaks that bar apart, it's actually really important that the thing isn't the chocolate, it's who you share it with. That's right. You can't eat the whole bar yourself. You share it. Each person gets one piece. And that's why it's so interesting to me that none of the merchandising is food. That yeah. almost none of the merchandising is food. That they're not trying to sell you chocolate because this movie's not selling you chocolate. It's about the idea of chocolate, but not the tasty, tasty taste of it. No. Because you can't break Converse shoes apart and share them. You need to shift units. And if people are sharing stuff, we're not going to sell stuff. That's exactly right. I had a funny note that I wrote in the cinema and I didn't realize the context until just now. I remembered that there's a part where the uh, chocolate in Wonka's first shop malfunctions and poisons people and their hair starts growing and starts happening. And what I wrote in the cinema was, 
And then they get really angry and they start throwing stuff and they trash the shop. And all I wrote was, imagine if British people rioted that easily. (laughs) For me, that was like the most historically inaccurate part. I was like, imagine people kicking off. We didn't even kick off at Brexit. Energy prices, let's go. Do you know what I mean? Like we're not not a nation of people who kick off. And I'm not proud of that. But like the riot in the chocolate factory was the funniest part to me. I was like, no. Oh my God. Yet another way in which the movie is also kind of set in France. I have a question. Would your feelings about this change if uh, all of the Roald Dahl universe went into the public domain? Because it should. And it sounds now like it's not going to, because it sounds like it's going to live on forever, like, like Mickey Mouse in this long rolling Netflix story company. The fact that it is profitable is what is most gross to all of us, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, it's the profitability and the contortions of attempting to render it continuously profitable. Like, so many of the things that we're naming are, like, the really cringy, weird ways that this is very clearly, like, you know, an American production company trying to figure out how to render this IP maximally profitable for themselves in the 21st century. And if it was in the public domain, there would just be a thousand more weird things happening. There's an episode of The Simpsons when Marge finds a beautiful pink Chanel suit on a clearance rack and it's $99. And she's like, $99, I can't afford that. And her daughter, Lisa, is saying, mom, but it's on clearance from like $10,000 or whatever. You can't afford not to buy it. So Marge buys it and immediately starts to encounter all of these opportunities because she's dressed like a classy fascist business lady. And then she starts to get teased by her classy fascist business lady acquaintances about the fact that she only has one suit. And so then she starts to tailor and retailer the suit, trying to stretch it to its limits to the point where the suit, the dress, it's and it's always recognizable as the same suit that she's like contorted into new mm, iterations um, to the point where she then, in trying to stretch it to its limits, tears the fabric completely and then it becomes useless. And the rich fascist ladies are like, why don't you just buy a new dress? And then Marge does, she does buy a new dress, but like, that's, that's, that's not the point of my story. The point of my story is that unlike a working class family with three children and a single income, we have the capacity to just tell new stories. <laughs> yeah. We do not need to continue to stretch and pull the fabric of a story that served a purpose one time. (laughs) You're so right, because I think the merchandise that you listed at the beginning, what of that is for children? Like all of the merchandise is aimed at affluent adults. That's right, yeah. What do the children have? If the children want to go to the cinema and get something that's theirs and not a nostalgia passed down from their parents, what do they watch? They don't have anything. Nah, no. That's so sad. No, because there's no new stories. There's just the recycling of old IP. <laughs> old fascist ideas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My God. Oh. 
Material Girls is a Witch Please production and is distributed by Acast. Once you're done burning your copies of Matilda and then feeling awkward about it, you can head over to ohwitchplease.ca to check out the rest of our episodes, as well as transcripts, reading lists, and merch. We also have an excellent newsletter at substack.com slash ohwitchplease, and an even better Patreon at patreon.com slash ohwitchplease. Also, we're on Instagram and X and threads at ohwitchplease, and on TikTok at ohwitchpleasepod. My God, we do a lot of things. Lena, where can people go to find out more about your work? Um, so you can search No Books on the Dead Planet on your favorite podcasting app, or you can follow me on YouTube at Lena Norms, L-E-E-N-A-N-O-R-M-S. Thank you, Lena. Thanks to Auto Syndicate for the use of our theme song, Shopping Mall. And of course, thanks to the whole Witch Please Productions team. Our digital content coordinator, Gabby Iori. Our social media manager and marketing designer, Zoe Mix. And our executive producer, Hannah Rehack, a.k.a. Coach. At the end of every episode, we will thank everyone who has joined our Patreon or boosted their tier to help make our work possible. Our enormous gratitude this episode goes out to Josie E., Lorraine B., Valerie S., Emma, Amanda VL, Anna MJ, Maggie, Andrea B., Melian522, Vikram S., Georgia K., Lada B., Fredman, and Ryan C. We'll be back next episode to tackle another piece of pop culture through a whole new theoretical lens. But until then... Later, great glass elevators! Oh.